Good morning, everyone. It's so nice to see you, and we're so glad you're here. There was a man who walked in uh, to his uh, locker room at his country club, and he was on the phone. And so the men that were in the locker room were only picking up half of the conversation. And he walked in, and he could hear the man responding to a woman's voice on the other line. And she said, listen, uh, I uh, was able to get that purse I always wanted. It was $500, but I got it for $350. And the man said, great buy, way to be a great shopper. And then she said, you know that Mercedes we had our eyes on? It was $125,000, but I want to let you know that I just made a deal. I got the car at $100,000. He said, wow, that is a great buy. You're such an awesome shopper. And she said, oh, by the way, that house we were looking at at the water is $1.5 million. But I want to let you know, I got it for $1.25 million. I just signed the papers today. And he says, wow, you are shrewd, and that is amazing. So the other men in the locker room were sitting hearing this conversation. And uh, when the conversation closed, the man who had been talking the whole time just asked the question, whose cell phone is this? That's pretty good, isn't it? So we thank you, uh, the joy that we have in the Lord. And um, now as Christ followers, we really do rejoice in the amazing truth that history is not circular. History is not cyclical. Furthermore, history is not random. It is not haphazard. It is not meaningless. History has point, it has power, it has purpose, and most of all, it has direction. As it were, history is like an arrow shot out of the bow to the glorious second coming of Jesus Christ, the blessed hope of the church. Now, who believes that this morning, that this event of all events will happen someday? Put your hand up if you believe that today. Now, as you know, this is much more than a doctrinal or a biblical teaching. This is a reality. This is an eventuality that was promised by the Lord God Almighty himself. I am so glad that we do not live in the same old, same old, or just the uh, same things, different day. That is only a problem with our imagination. We do know, in fact, that history is going to be consummated someday by the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. But I do know that it's very easy to be disconnected, disconnected from that reality. It's very easy to think that that is way out there in the future. It's so far from now, what does that have to do what today, for uh, about today? So the eventuality of Jesus' second coming, what import or what impact did that have to do when you woke up this morning? Who here thought that, you know what, Christ is coming back again, what must I do today? Who woke up with that in your heart or in your thinking? Most of us probably haven't. One of the best visionary leaders that I know and got a wonderful chance to uh, befriend is now the president of Oral Roberts University. And he once told me that vision is very, very hard to pull off, whether it's for churches or businesses or organizations, because by nature, vision is futuristic. 
It's kind of abstract. It's way far out there. And people, by nature, are very much riveted by the moment. They are in the present. They are doing day to day. And it's hard to really look out there into the future and see what kind of relevance or what kind of impact something in the future has for this very day. So he said to make vision effective, to make it powerful, to make it real and meaningful, the way to do vision is to go to the future and work backwards and figure out how the vision is important from the first day in the vision to the last day in the vision. In other words, you work vision backwards. Vision backtracks. Now, his idea made a whole lot of sense to me about vision because how many of you know that God is in the future calling us into the future with him? He really is. Now, I want to give you a really concrete, recent example of this. A few months ago, uh, my friend Steve uh, had the vision to do what we call a century ride. Have you heard of this thing called a century ride? Now, a century ride is to ride your bike 100 miles at least on the same day or in the same event. After he asked me if I wanted to join him in his vision, I promptly said, who said what to who now? Who in the world would want to sit on a bike for 100 miles and pedal as fast and as hard as one can? But he kept encouraging me and he kept conjoling me. But I want to let you know that because I, uh, are gen I am generally uh, busy on Sundays, most of these century rides are on Sundays. So we had to find one that was on a Saturday. And we found one that was on a Saturday. And that was yesterday on November 9th. Now I'm going to have Steve come, my uh, biking partner, and tell you how it was that when we decided to do that particular vision, how it changed how we trained till we got to that particular day. Will you welcome uh, Steve Bowers into our congregation today? Good morning, church. A few months ago, um, me and John have been riding cycling together, which is kind of having fun a few days a week and, and getting into good shape. And uh, I came upon this crazy vision of doing a century together. And as you said, that's a hundred miles in one event. And uh, the most we had written was probably 30-something miles. Um, so to do a century is, is quite, um, it's, it's a pinnacle in, in the amateur cycling. That's something that you really would want to shoot for um, if you're serious about getting into cycling. So I came to John, and as my brother said, um, he looked at me and said, do you really want to do this? And I said, absolutely. Uh, it's a vision I have, and I know we can do it with the right mindset and the right training. So we set the event, and uh, it was, like you said, yesterday. And um, we worked backwards and decided, okay, let's do some research on how to train for an event like this, because you just don't get up one morning and ride on your bikes. <laughs> you, don't, you don't do that. It, it's a long, it's, we figure it's going to be about five and a half to six hours.
So because we uh, did allow the vision of November 9th to impact how we trained, I'm glad to tell you that we did, in fact, uh, there were 350 riders and 60 rode the 100, and uh, we finished in the top third, not because of any talent of mine, I can definitely say that, but because of the training and allowing that vision to impact how we did our cycling from the day that we chose it. So when we think about the second coming of Jesus, how does that impact our lives right now? in what we say and what we do and how we live and how we act. So today we're going to uh, finish off the valley portion of our geographical series. Next week we're going to talk about oceans. But we're going to do so in the valley of decision. And for that I want you to come with me to Joel chapter 314 as we see how it is that Jesus' second coming impacts every day that we live. This is from the prophet Joel, who says, Multitudes, multitudes in the valley of decision, for the day of the Lord is near in the valley of decision. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. How many do you know that nobody likes a prophet? Nobody likes a prophet. A prophet's calling was to be the mouthpiece of God. And generally, God would speak to his people, well, when God's people weren't where they were supposed to be, close to God. When this happened, God would send his prophet to encourage the people, to control the people, to get them to decide whether or not they were going to follow God or to follow the world. Now, how I many you know that rebellious sinners and um, the spiritually indifferent and uh, the religious elite really did despise the prophet because the prophet would speak the unfettered, unvarnished truth of God regardless of the circumstances or regardless of the consequences. That's what a true and faithful prophet did. And many times this shocked and chagrined the people who were, knew better who knew they were supposed to be in a vibrant relationship with God and obey his ways, but chose for whatever reason not to do so. Every time he spoke the word of the Lord, it brought conviction and it brought challenge. Because how many know that people uh, do what is right in their own eyes or what they think is right in their own eyes? And they don't even know they're sinning and they don't even know they're disobeying until they collide with a whole different worldview, a whole different perspective, a whole different voice, and that voice being from God. And the problem with the prophets were is they could not care less about how people felt about what they were saying. They couldn't care less. And that didn't rub well in cultures that are known as victim cultures or therapeutic cultures. He spoke the word of the Lord saying this, you are at point A, God wants you at point B. I don't care how it is you move over to point B, just get over to point B so that you might enjoy the blessings of God once again. Now one such prophet was the prophet Joel. Now Joel was in the class of minor prophets there were 12 of those, and they were only minor prophets because their prophetic years and prophetic writings 
were a little shorter than those of the major prophets. Listen to Joel's prophetic introduction in Joel chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, where we read, The word of the Lord, the word of the Lord came to Joel, son of Pethiel, and everybody say verse 2 with me, hear this. How many know that when God speaks, he likes to be listened to? Put your hand up, right? How many know that God does not like to be ignored? He certainly doesn't. And so he employs the prophets to come and to talk to, in this case, the Israelites in the southern part of the nation. They were about to experience a catastrophe, a crisis of massive proportions. You see, the world's only superpower at that time, known as the Assyrians, had just demolished the northern part of Israel. And this world-dominating machine had set its strategic eyes upon the southern part of Judah and Jerusalem. The people who lived there, the inhabitants of this valley, were so much in fear and fret over this powerful, powerful world superpower that they did not know what to do. The Assyrians had sacked, pillaged, and plundered any nation that had gotten in their way. And they're about to do so to Judah and Jerusalem. Because it's Veterans Day, I might add that, uh, who remembers the Blitzkrieg, the German Blitzkrieg through Europe during World War II? Or even a Patton's uh, cutting through Germany like a knife. This was the same thing. The Assyrians were so powerful and so dominant, they could easily cut through Israel, much like a serrated knife, through hot butter. And the people are in panic. Now, how many know that it's really in the times of crises that we kind of look up, right? When we hit rock bottom, when there seems to be no hope or no way out, then we start to think, wow, wow, we better start asking God for help. And this, the people were doing. Joel says that the Assyrian army is about to attack you like a great, great locust that devours everything in its path. And so this threat, this threat of extinction provided a tremendous motivation for the people to look up to God and to look for answers. God heard that prayer, and so he sent his prophet Joel to give them answers. Now, the prophets' responses are always really pretty easy or simple. They're not complicated. The prophets' message has always been repent, repent of your death word ways, get back and restore your relationship with God so that he might bless you again. If indeed you repent and restore your relationship with God by being obedient to his word, God will obliterate the Assyrians. However, if you don't want to repent and don't want to restore your relationship with God, God will end up allowing or deciding for the Assyrians to obliterate you. Now, how many know that's not much of a choice, right? How many of you would go for the former? Okay, Lord, what do I got to do to be right with you? Now, in the Bible, the, God's judgments are usually framed by this phrase, and they're called the day of the Lord. And the prophet Joel tells the people that the day of the Lord is at hand, meaning it's imminent, meaning 
it's close, meaning you can reach out and touch it. So do not delay. You must make an immediate decision in the valley of decision. Now, many scholars believe that this valley that's referred to here in our text was the Kidron Valley that we see in the New Testament. If you remember, this was east of Jerusalem, and it is precisely where Judas decided to betray Jesus so that he might end up being crucified. This was also known as the Valley of Jehoshaphat, meaning that this is the Valley of Judgment, the Valley of Decision. This is where the Lord has decided that his people need to straighten out their act, whatever it takes, in order to be spared the judgment of the Assyrians. Now, because all prophecies have what is known as double fulfillment, meaning they are fulfilled in the day that they are spoken, and they are fulfilled in a future time, um, the next day of the Lord is the second coming of Jesus Christ, which we referred to earlier. This day of the Lord is the final. It is the ultimate day of the Lord. And this is the day of all days where Jesus will come back and he will consummate history. How many know that just in a few short weeks we will go into the Advent season? Have you ever heard of the Advent season? Well, that usually commemorates Jesus' first Advent or his first appearing on this planet. Well, Advent also points to the second coming or the second appearing of Jesus Christ to come back and to consummate history. So what does that mean for us? How do we prepare for this day? We who can be considered inhabitants of the valley of this world. How do we start getting ready for that day of all days? How does that really affect our thinking, our behavior, how we live? Well, I think it means to do so by us today making two mammoth, life-changing decisions. Now, the first is to confess today that Jesus Christ is the Lord and Savior, that he is the leader and forgiver of history. We get this from two very powerful scriptural passages, the one being Philippians chapter 2, verse 9. It's there that the Apostle Paul says that before Christ, every knee shall bow. Now, folks, do you know what every means in this passage? What does every mean? What does every mean? Every, every knee shall bow. Every knee shall bow and tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father. And then when Paul said this in a different place, in Romans 14, 11, he said that every knee shall bow and tongue shall confess that Jesus Christ is Lord and to give an account before God. How I many know that each and every one of us are going to give an account to God for our lives? Who wants to say, oh, me to that right now? But that is part of the day of the Lord in the future, the second coming of Jesus Christ. Now, God wants to do this. God wants us to confess Jesus Christ as Lord lovingly, uh, freely, uh, gracefully, uh, graciously. Because some of you know that Jesus loves you. You've heard of that statement, haven't you? But we have to remember that Jesus is not an option. He is just not somebody that you trifle with. 
He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the one who was once dead and now is alive forevermore. He is the way, the truth, and the life, and the only way to the Father. He is the only name, Peter said in Acts 4.12, the only name that is given under heaven by which we are saved. How many know there's no other options outside of Jesus? None whatsoever. And so Jesus Christ came because God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that none should perish, but that all should have eternal life. And so we have a choice to make today to freely bow our knee and to confess that Jesus Christ is our personal Lord and Savior, leader and forgiver. Because I can tell you, and I've heard it often in the church, you know what, I'm just going to try to live my life. I'm going to get out and have all the fun. I'm going to get all I can and, and can all I get. And then right before my death, what I'm going to do is say the sinner's prayer and all will be well. How many know that Jesus is not a hedge fund manager? And we are not either. We do not hedge our bets with the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords. I can just tell you if you wait and you are forced to bow before the Lord at some day in the future, well, let me just say that you better have a nice pair of asbestos swimwear because your eternity is not going to be with him. It's going to be in the other place. Now, that's the first decision we all make in preparation of that day of the Lord, which we know is coming in the future. The second mammoth decision that we must, must, must make today is to be a sheep and not a goat. Now, you must be scratching your head and saying, Pastor, what in the world are you talking about? Now, who remembers last week's message when we talked about the great shepherd psalm of Psalm 23? He leads us and he guides us into paths of righteousness for his namesake. We talked about all the dynamics of the relationship between the shepherd and the sheep uh, what a unique connection that is. But when we talk about sheep, we're particularly talking about what Jesus spoke about in the great Olivet Discourse of Matthew chapter 24 and 25. Now, the Olivet Discourse is very, very important because it is there that Jesus Christ himself describes his day when he comes back. I'm going to read a portion of this Olivet Discourse for you in Matthew chapter 25, verses um, 31 through 36. He says, when the Son of Man comes. Now, this was Jesus' favorite title for himself, Son of Man. It's straight from the prophet Daniel, who loved to call Jesus that way back in the Old Testament. When the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him... Now, this is the second coming. He will sit on his throne in heavenly glory. All the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate the people from another as the shepherd separates what? The sheep from the goats. Keep that in mind. And he will put the sheep on his right and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed of my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. And I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. 
And I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. And I was sick, and you looked after me. And I was in prison, and you came to visit me. So what is Jesus saying here? Who are his sheep? And what are the sheep doing differently from the goats? As we prepare for that final day, we probably want a good answer on this, don't we? But what Jesus is saying here is that the sheep confess Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. They bow their knees to him. And they also did something else. They continued his ministry. They continued his manifold and his merciful ministries in the earth, dedicated primarily to the least, the lost, the last, and the lonely. This is what the sheep did. This is what they did. They said, yes, Christ is my Lord. This is what we do in his name. We help people. We help people who are hurting. We help people that are enslaved. We help people who are hungry. We help people who are thirsty. We help people who have been incarcerated. This is the ministry of the sheep. This is the ministry of the church. And because the sheep have dedicated themselves to these kinds of ministries and many, many others, they will enjoy forevermore the glories and the treasures of heaven, which will never, ever be taken away. What do the sheep do that the goats don't? They minister in Christ's name on behalf of other people. Now the goats, not so much. The goats, yeah, they confess Jesus Christ as Lord, but you know what? They say, we're not going to continue the ministry of Christ. We're too busy. We got better things to do. We don't care about people who are hurting, people who are homeless, people who are lost, people who are least. And because they had that attitude, they are going to the other place where asbestos swimwear is the mandatory wardrobe. Now, I know that sounds unusual. And every time I read this passage, it hits me like a ton of bricks. And I know so many problems in the church today is that we think faith is just a belief system. We think if we know certain data, certain theology, certain doctrines, certain biblical scriptures, that we're good to go. But what flows from true faith are the true works of ministry on behalf of the underprivileged. And this is what the sheep dedicate themselves to. And this is what we must dedicate ourselves to as well. Now, I can just tell you as your pastor, I am duty-bound, duty-bound by commission of God's word to make sure that you are preparing along with me for this ultimate day of the Lord, the second coming of Jesus Christ. Therefore, I want, I want, I want from the bottom of my heart for you to decide this day that without a doubt, without a shadow of doubt, without any hesitancy, without any preoccupation, that Jesus Christ is your Lord, that you have bowed your knee to him for the glory of the Father. 
I pray, I pray this prayer, not only for your sake, but for my own, because I do not want to go to heaven without you. And this is the way to heaven. Please, if you have not yet just prayed a simple prayer to ask Christ to come into your heart through faith, do that right now. Again, it's just not a belief system or an abstract. It's a living, interactive, and a dynamic relationship with your Creator, with your Redeemer, and with your Sustainer. Now, if you already made this confession, this is great. This is great. This is awesome. It's step one, if you will. However, if you really do think that ministry is something that, you know what, paid professionals do, pastors and staff, or the really, really dedicated of the church, then I want you to really, really change this goatish thinking. Because from true faith in Christ, from true confession in Christ, comes true ministry in Christ's name for the sake of others. This is something that I really, really want you to think of differently. Because the church is nothing but a ministry center that, that is the hands and the feet of Jesus Christ in all of the world. Unfortunately, we're stuck with an agonizing, agonizing statistic that essentially about 10% of all the people in the church do 90% of the work of the church. How many know that's not right? And how many know that if that keeps up, many people are going to stand before the Lord someday, and they're going to say, oh my goodness, I did not continue your ministry. I want you to change this goatish thinking and become a sheep, even as we talked about last week, because your eternal uh, destiny is hanging in the balance. And I do not want to go to heaven without you. The great day of the Lord is coming. This is the second coming of Christ. We're getting ready to commemorate it in just a few more weeks. But I want to make sure that this day has impact, that it has relevance, that it has meaning, that it has purpose, that it has power in your life. And the best way to start is through these two simple decisions to make sure that Jesus Christ is your Lord and to make sure that we become a sheep and minister in his name. Now, I really want you to do that. And the, towards that end, we put a card in your worship folder. Will you pull out that card with me now? And really, there is two decisions. There's one on the front and one on the back. And what I really want to do is close off this service by you writing down, yes, I have made Christ my Lord and Savior. I bow my knee to him, and I confess that he is my Lord. And on the back, it's a dedication to be a sheep. We all got to get ready for that day of all days. I do not want to stand before the Lord someday on that day and say, you know what, Lord, I was just way too busy. Hey, Lord, I had my stuff to do. Hey, Lord, there were more important things for me than to dedicate myself to your purposes of ministry on the earth. So I really want you to take a moment and pray. Take a moment right now. And really mark that. And I want you to bring it up. We have a, a, a thing here. Uh, we call it the ministry jar. And I really want you to come up and put something in that jar as we pray and as we sing the last song. Will you pray with me now? Great and gracious God, we 
Your word is true. It is eternal. It is inspired. It is authoritative. Lord, we thank you so much for the things we read in the word, for the things we know in the word. And would you just lay it, lay it, lay it on our hearts to touch us so deeply that we are transformed today by your word, that we would be a people that are busily preparing for that day of all days. So that would be a gray of day, a day of great celebration and not a great day of sorrow for us individually. So Father, move upon our hearts now as we give our hearts fully to you and as we decide in the valley of decision to do the wonderful ministry that you have called each and every one of us to do. I pray this for your glory and our joy. And the church said, amen. So write something down and put it up in this jar before you uh, leave this building today. Amen.